0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Our Manity. I am so excited to be here with colleague and friend and internationally renowned Dr. Jill Kraft. So she is a vulvar pain specialist. She's director of Jill Kraft MD or the Volvo Vaginal Center in Tampa, Florida. Um, she's also the medical advisor for the Lycan Sclerosis Support Network. She's the author of dozens of research articles. Look her up online and the co-author of When Sex Hurts, I recommend Purchasing this book, whether you're a patient or healthcare provider, you're going to learn something from it. So I'm so excited to have her here today. We're going to talk about lichen sclerosis. Welcome, Dr. Kraft.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. So um, I wanted to just kind of dive into lichen sclerosis. Can you explain to us what is lichen sclerosis? I have patients who are like, sclerosis, what? I don't have that. But (laughs) what is lichen sclerosis or LS?
1: Yeah. So lichen sclerosis is essentially an autoimmune inflammatory skin condition. And it usually affects women and it usually affects the genital area. So the vulva, it also affects around the anal area as well. And most people will present with itching. That's usually what brings them to the doctor, but it's also present with scarring effects, which is the sclerosis part. So Lichen in Latin means thickening, which causes the itching sensation. And then sclerosis in Latin means scarring. And so we can see some what we call fusion or agglutination. It basically means that there's loss of the labia minora, and there is coverage of the clitoris, and there can be narrowing of the vaginal opening. And it's these scarring changes that can cause issues with
0: sexual function. Okay. And how is it a person might know that they might have lichen sclerosis or might suspect that that they would have it?
1: Yeah. So lichen sclerosis is a really tough one because it is usually under or undiagnosed. There's an average of a five-year delay in diagnosis, unfortunately. Many different factors go into this. So first of all, lichen sclerosis, like other skin conditions of the vulva, it's really a condition that's caught between two medical specialties, right? Because we have gynecologists who are looking at the area all day, every day as they do their pelvic exams and their paps and so forth. And then we have dermatologists who are experts in skin and hair and nails, and they're looking everywhere except for usually the vulva. And so gynecologists, even though they're looking, they may not be trained in these skin conditions. And so I think we miss a lot of opportunity for diagnosis of skin conditions like this. The good news is that it's becoming More talked about. This was a condition that was really kept under wraps. I mean, if you had an itchy private area, no one really talked about this, or people thought it was a yeast infection, and you would go to the store and try to treat yourself. And then if it got out of hand, you would go to your gynecologist. And of course, as gynecologists, the first thing we like to do is rule out infection, right? But eventually, after time, usually doctors think, okay, this isn't working, there must be something else. So then you people usually get a biopsy and that's how it's diagnosed in kind of a roundabout way. But the good news is that as more education goes out and as more patients come together on support groups through social media, through Facebook support groups as well as Reddit and other ways that they can connect about more private matters. People are really talking about this and I think that eventually hopefully we can see an earlier diagnosis if we couple that with education for clinicians um, right. to recognize this Earlier, diagnose it earlier, or send somebody to a specialist earlier so we can prevent a lot of the scarring that occurs with this condition
0: before it gets worse. Yeah, because you said that the scarring even starts to narrow the vagina, changes the anatomy, honestly. And I see that in my office, unfortunately, every week where it's gone so far and, and been unnoticed. So itching is one of the first things that somebody might suspect. And I don't know about you, I have patients who've been treated for recurrent yeast infections, like you said, and actually have lichen sclerosis, but some women really do just have recurrent yeast infections, so what should a person do when they might fall into that category?
1: Yes, and what makes it even trickier is some people have both. They have lichen sclerosis and a superimposed vulvar-embedded yeast infection, almost like a baby diaper rash. Because sometimes what can happen is the topicals that we use to treat these conditions can actually, if they're not used in the correct way, can actually increase our risk of yeast overgrowth or even bacterial overgrowth on the area. So it makes it pretty tricky, you know, really starting out with a diagnosis is the first step, but we need to be able to make that diagnosis. And so usually what we look for is whitening of the area. This occurs typically in the vulva on the non-hair-bearing areas at first, although lichen sclerosis can extend outward. And then we also look at the perineum, which is that area between the vaginal opening and the anus, and then, of course, the perianal area, and that's that figure of eight that we usually talk about when we're talking about lichen sclerosis. So we're looking for whitening, and then we're also looking for thickening, which is hard to explain to patients because it's one of those things that require a trained eye, light and magnification to really diagnose this. But the thickening is essentially determining how much inflammation is under the surface. So what might be helpful is to take a step back and talk about how lichen sclerosis happens.
0: That would be great. Okay, go for it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So up until five to 10 years ago, all the textbooks would say lichen sclerosis is likely an autoimmune condition or it's possibly an autoimmune condition. Right. I think at this point, we have enough research to say that this is an autoimmune condition. We have identified the genes that are upregulated and downregulated in this condition. It's not universal for all lichen sclerosis. And my personal belief there is that there's different phenotypes or different types of lichen sclerosis. Because we know in practice, we see people that have more of the thickening and itching symptoms. We see people that have more of the scarring symptoms. And then we see people that only their vulva is affected or only their perianal area is affected. So there's a lot of variation. And we also see different age groups affected. So we usually think of this condition as a condition of young girls and postmenopausal women. However, it can occur at any Age. And we know this because you and I did a study looking at so many people, almost a thousand of reproductive age, that are 20s, 30s, 40s, that had diagnosed lichen sclerosis, whether it was clinically diagnosed by a healthcare professional or whether it was biopsy proven. But going back to how this starts, the idea here is that there is a protein or a series of proteins, we haven't quite figured this out, in the basement membrane or the bottom layer of the skin that the body identifies as not self. That is what makes it autoimmune because the local immune system within the skin reacts to these proteins in the basement and causes inflammation or inflammatory factors to gather in the lower areas of the skin. And essentially, this changes the way that the skin regenerates and causes the skin to incorporate stiffer forms of collagen in a more haphazard way. And so the middle layer of the skin becomes thickened, and that is what causes itch. Thick skin is itchy, whether that be eczema or psoriasis or lichen sclerosis. And we see so much more inflammation within the skin and lichen sclerosis compared to these other conditions like psoriasis or eczema. It's it's orders of magnitude higher. It's the most inflammatory condition that we know of, honestly. And then what happens is that the top layer of the skin loses its zipper-like qualities that kind of hold it on. And then the very top layer of the skin actually thins and then what we call keratinizes or gets kind of that rough, thick kind of overcoat. And this explains some of the things that we see with lichen sclerosis when we see a wax paper. Appearance of the skin. We can see fissures or breakage or cracks in the skin, tearing of the skin. You can also see bruising, right? Which people get very alarmed by, but basically it's small little blood vessels under the surface that kind of get trapped in that thickened layer and it causes a bruising picture, which is all a part of lichen sclerosis as well as the whitening um, effect because the inflammation attacks the pigment in our skin and it turns the area. Uh, white. And so these are the things that we're looking for. The trouble is that not many people look unless they have symptoms. And then once they have
0: symptoms, they're not sure if it always looked that way or not. Right. Um, Okay. So first PSA for everybody out there, look at your vulva. So you know what it looks like. And if there's changes, you know what those changes are. Second one, you know, I was just thinking you were talking about fissures. How many of your patients, because I see this all the time and it shocks me, who tear with sex or fissure with sex and think that that's normal? And I end up diagnosing them with lichen sclerosis. I cannot imagine if they're tearing that often and for how many years. That is not normal.
1: (laughs) No, there's so many people that have this that they actually don't know if it's normal or not because it's always happened. And they won't bring it to the attention of their doctors because they don't know. They just think it's, oh, you know, I haven't had sex in a while. Maybe it was because of that or maybe that was a little rough or, you know, really uh, a lot of people attribute it to many different things. Um, And fissuring is one of the most distressing things and most common things that happen, especially in lichen sclerosis in those middle age groups and people in their 20s. 30s and 40s. And for any of the practitioners that may be listening, we should also differentiate between tearing and fissuring, right? They can look similar, but with a fissure, you're actually having a crack of the skin because the skin is thick, right? So it cracks almost like a concrete would crack. That's a good way to put
0: it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas with tearing, we're more we're talking more about a thin scar tissue band, such as a posterior introidal scar band. And then so that's more of a avascularization, meaning there's not a lot of blood vessels in that scar tissue, and that's more of a tear. So we need to differentiate as providers, especially at the posterior opening of the vagina, the bottom opening, right, where the tearing typically happens right at that. If we're looking at the opening like a clock, it's that six o'clock position, right, always. So we really do need to differentiate, is this a issue of too much inflammation with thickening and cracking? Or is this a situation where um, the inflammation is under control but someone has a scar band and it's the scar tissue that's tearing because these are treated differently?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And so you mentioned we see this most commonly in young girls and in postmenopausal women when estrogen levels are low, but it could happen to anyone. And so do you just think that the symptoms are not as obvious when there's you know decent estrogen circulating in the vulva and vagina what should someone who's not in those age groups be looking for
1: people in that age group do have itch It's usually not the predominant symptom. Now, everyone's a little bit different. And it also, you can have hormonal fluctuations based on other things that decrease estrogen, such as certain medications, breastfeeding, postpartum, and so forth. But it's the same process, whether we're talking about before puberty and estrogen levels are low, after menopause, or postpartum, right? And so it's it's very similar processes. I think it, how someone reacts probably has to do with their genetics and how well their receptors work, their estrogen and testosterone receptors, as well as the general levels in their body, which can fluctuate depending on what's going on. My thought about this is that after menopause or perimenopause, when those hormone levels are fluctuating, we know that whole body itch is a symptom of perimenopause and menopause due to low estrogen. We know that when people have low estrogen, they are more likely to be itchy. So it makes sense to me that at times when estrogen is adequate, then that may be covered a bit in the setting of lichen sclerosis and itch may not be as severe, or it may not be the primary uh, concern that that uh, or primary symptoms. Everyone's a little different with this, though. But I think that the bottom line here is that you don't necessarily have to have itch to have lichen sclerosis.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. And you mentioned, so it's kind of caught between two specialties of dermatology and gynecology. You're an OBGYN. How did you get the training to, you know, manage women with lichen sclerosis to recognize it to really become a world expert in the topic. I had
1: great mentorship is the answer. So when I was finishing my last year of residency as a chief resident, I was very fortunate in that there was one day where we had everyone was sick or out of maternity leave. There was no one to cover cases and I was the administrative uh, chief resident. So I was in charge of all of that administrative stuff. And there was a case by one of the world's experts, um, not related to lichen sclerosis. It was a case involving the vulva, a surgical case. And so I volunteered myself because I was the only one that was available to assist this individual who is Dr. Andrew Goldstein, very well known in the field. And so that moment changed my life. It was really powerful. We spent the entire case. uh, First of all, he had such great trust in me. I was able to do the case with him. And he told me all about the conditions that he sees and treats. And I was very much intrigued. And so I asked him if I could join him in the office in his private practice. And I did. And then I was very fortunate. in the following year, I did a medical education fellowship because I wanted to be the dean of a medical school or something like that. And so I had a lot of research time doing medical education research and taking classes and so forth. And so I essentially did two unaccredited fellowships in one year. (laughs) I I did a fellowship in medical education and worked toward my master's in education. And I also did a fellowship with Dr. Andrew Goldstein and became a vulvar pain specialist. That's amazing. So after that, I started the Center for uh, Sexual Health at the George Washington University, which was pretty daunting because I was a brand new attending faculty member fresh out. But what was really amazing, and this is another example of mentorship. I was paired with a urologist who had just sold his private practice. He had been in private practice in urology for 40 some years, treating all the men with erectile dysfunction. And he tried to retire and his wife was so annoyed with him that she made him go back. Sent him (laughs) back backwards. I know. So he joined in academics because he thought it would be a little light, you know, as part time. He joined GW just to get out of the house. And so we were this unlikely pair, right? This older gentleman who had seen it all, ran private practice for 40 years, treating erectile dysfunction. And I'm this young, enthusiastic, you know, female OBGYN who is basically treating all the women that have to deal with the aftermath of him treating their husbands and partners (laughs) erectile dysfunction. And so we worked together, we created the center, and he taught me actually a lot about how to run a practice, how to run a center, how to market, how to basically do these things. And all of that went into eventually me joining Dr. Andrew Goldstein at the Center for Vulvo Vaginal Disorders in DC and running that practice for four years. And then I branched out and started my own practice.
0: That is really a great story. Hi, friends. I'm here to remind you to subscribe and like to the podcast. I love doing this. I love bringing people on, but I need to know if you're actually listening to me. I get no feedback out here. So I know things are going out. And then suddenly I'll talk to someone and they say, oh yeah, I love your podcast. It's awesome. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know you were listening. So if you want to stay in the know, you want to get notified when new episodes come back, please, please, please subscribe and like. Go into your podcast and you just, in the upper right corner, you press the plus sign and it turns to a check mark and then you're subscribing. And then of course you can like it five stars, of course, right? If you can, please. And, um, if you use Spotify, if you use Zencast or whatever you use, it's fine. Just please subscribe and like, thank you. It's a really interesting point that you talk about urology because I'm in a urology department and my colleagues who take care of men with lichen sclerosis are kind of shocked by how lichen sclerosis is still so much of a mystery or underdiagnosed in women. But in men, they see it actually causing urethral strictures where Mm -hmm. it really interferes with urination and, you know, can cause pain and they need surgery. And so it's just a completely different sort of manifestation of the disease. And so I think it's a little bit easier to diagnose or it comes up as a diagnosis much more frequently because of that compared to in women. But it would be interesting if it's autoimmune and we see some genetics behind it. I wonder mm-hmm. if we should be looking at the women in the family of the men who have lichen sclerosis. I don't know, maybe that'd be another way to help with diagnosis?
1: I think we can really learn a lot from colleagues of different specialties. Yeah. That's why I think it's so wonderful that you're an OBGYN in a urology department, because you just get a different perspective. And I know that my colleagues who are urologists, for example, Dr. Rachel Rubin in DC, we were both in DC for a long time. And it was just so interesting bouncing things off. I have such an a gynecology perspective. And she has obviously a urology perspective. And she knows how to translate this From women to men and then from men back to women. And so I think that we can really learn a lot from each other as far as surgical technique and use of hormones. And, you know, even we're learning so much about hormones through gender affirming practitioners, we're learning so much about safety about different things. So we really should look to our colleagues, even plastic surgeons with techniques, um, dermatologists, right, we have to work with dermatologists, They often know a lot about biologics and different immunomodulators. So if we come together, we're going to have so many more tools for a condition like this, which really crosses multiple spectrums.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. I love that. Okay, last question for you. So if a person thinks that... She may have lichen sclerosis. She's looking at her vola for the first time today, thanks to our podcast. And she's like, oh, gosh, there is some whitening here. Oh, there is this. And regardless of symptoms, she's just curious. Where should she look for a health provider to get help, especially if they don't live in Tampa?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. There's a number of specialists around the country, but there's too few. So one resource that I recommend is the Lichen Sclerosis Support Network. This is a nonprofit organization that started back in 2019. And I've really been with them since they started. And I currently serve as their medical advisor, a completely volunteer position. And I think it's so important to raise awareness and provide support. They do host webinars and educational events, absolutely phenomenal the organizers have done a, a great job and so when we were first talking about this back in 2019 into 2020 what i really envisioned what i really wanted was a directory so practitioners who they might not be experts in lichen sclerosis but they at least see it and want to see it and want to help somebody can get on this directory um, and so lichen sclerosis support network on their website has a directory And you can search by state to see who is local to you. Because there are a lack of specialists, it may be necessary to travel at this point. The other thing that can be done is if you just need a diagnosis, then standard is biopsy. So to have your regular GYN or even or your dermatologist to do a biopsy yeah. if they believe that lichen like, yeah. is present, then at least we have a diagnosis and that may support insurance coverage or seeing a specialist or get somebody the resources that they need to get that higher level of care. But it is certainly still a challenge. And I think that as we share education and as we really train the next generation of OBGYNs and make, you know, obviously dermatologists aware of this, I'm hoping that that will explain band
0: yeah that's a great point well thank you so much for your time and your expertise today it's been such a pleasure to have you on and i'm sure i will be knocking on your door again to ask you to talk about other things because you've got expertise in so many other areas for women's health and women's sexual health so thank you so much for your time today thank you